Well, good morning, church. <clears throat> yes, if you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 8 this morning. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to, to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, our title for this morning uh, is, as Tom talked about, lawsuits in the church or lawsuits amongst believers or disputes amongst uh, believers. And our main idea here this morning is as Christians, we aim to imitate Christ in everything we do, especially when it comes to how we treat each other in our church family. It's important for us to show love and use the wisdom that God has given us through the Holy Spirit to deal with any conflict in a way that honors him, and even if it means at our own expense. So thinking through uh, this interesting passage here that God has for us this morning, uh, for some reason the very first thing that popped into my head was the people's court and Judge Wapner. And I don't know how many of you remember him, but some of the laughs here I'll, I'll imagine that you do. Uh, so as a, a child of the 80s and growing up in the 80s, I was, I was definitely had the ability or, or really the privilege of watching such a TV program. Um, but as a kid, I don't know that I really kind of felt the same way I do now as an adult where it's more nostalgic, right? Um, but really where I came in contact with the People's Court was my great-grandparents. Yes, I knew my great-grandparents, actually knew my great-great-grandmother. Um, and so, yes, my whole family had children very, very young, and I was no exception uh, in that kind of thread of life uh, as far as my family is concerned. But uh, when I was younger, my parents were having a lot of trouble, and I spent a lot of time on uh, my great-grandparents' farm, um, you know, getting up at 4, 3.30, 4 a.m., going out and, you know, tending to the livestock, uh, getting up and, you know, plowing the fields and doing all the things that farmers do. Um, my great-grandparents were very much of a, a different generation and a different age, and uh, those, you know, born right after World War I and going into the Great Depression, they definitely had a different perspective on life. Um, and one of the things that I remember most was, oddly enough, these two TV programs that they always watched. Um, and yes, they called the couch a Davenport, which really confused me all the time. Go sit on the Davenport. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but it was you know, a lot of things that they would say that in their vernacular and how they grew up and the things that you know, came to mind for them were, I was just clueless, you know. But anyway, um, but one of the shows was The Price is Right. You know, old school, Bob Barker, OG, you know, come on down. Um, and then The People's Court, 
And I just remember like my, my eyes flipping back into my head when the People's Court came on um, and just, you know, that, that theme song that I'm sure those of you who know it is popping into your head right now and I'm not going to do it, um, so don't ask me. Um, but I, you know, looking back on those moments in life, I, I, I cherish those, those moments with them and watching shows that they liked. I would have rather watched it, been watching Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, you know, Mr. Rogers, and when my grandmother wasn't looking, maybe some Dukes of Hazard or something, uh, but you know, we won't tell her. Um, but when we watched the People's Court, when we watched Judge Wapner, you know, it was a, a civil court. They were, they were dealing with civil cases. Um, and what, what you see is that it was kind of, if you go back and watch it, it's kind of I don't want to say bland, but it's kind of monotone, you know? He was a judge. Judge Wapner was a judge, and he was doing what you do in a court. Um, there wasn't a lot of fireworks. There wasn't a lot of showmanship. It just kind of was what it was. Now, going into the 90s, those of you who kind of experienced the 90s, you know that reality TV started coming on the scene, and entertainment in and of itself kind of changed. You could say for the better or for the worse, I'm not sure, depending on the conversation, but uh, ultimately, Americans and Westerners kind of has this, have this fascination with dumpster fires, right? It's like, oh, people's lives over here are a complete mess. Oh, let's watch that. Oh, this is exciting. Um, and court TV was really no different, was it? You see Judge Judy coming on, other people, other judges, which names I have no idea what they are. But, um, but you see Judge Judy, she's a very strong and very kind of verbose and very loud person. And you see these plaintiffs and these defendants, and they're arguing and cackling back and forth and all these fights and just, again, fireworks and everything going which way and every way. And, and so again, reality TV changed court TV. And so my beloved Judge Wapner was no more. Um, but as we kind of roll into our passage here this morning, we, we see in, in Roman Corinth and this Greco-Roman society that it is really kind of no different as far as its entertainment value or understanding is concerned, right? It likes to be entertained, just like we in America like to be, and in the West like to be entertained. And so how they saw the judicial system, how they saw the court system, was kind of very much like how we would watch court TV today or reality TV today. Again, they're going on a Friday night, not to a dinner and a show, but they're going to the courts. They're going to be entertained. They're going to hear some, some wisdom. They're going to hear some, some amazing order, just kind of, kind of spew this stuff out um, to their entertainment and the demise of the, the plaintiff or the defendant, as, as it were. And so this is very much integrated into the culture there in Corinth. And the church is wrapped up very much so in this culture, right? And so there's this, this kind of mentality that everyone's kind of happy to sue. Looking at uh, kind of ancient uh, Athens, rather, sorry, uh, it was said that every person in Athens is a lawyer. And so there's courthouses all around. And so you can see, again, this culture was integrated into Corinth. And we can see that the church was very much wrapped up in this way of thinking, happy to sue, uh, really very willing to be entertained by this, this matter, and also seeing someone's demise as a result, as we'll see here this morning. But, uh, but unfortunately, uh, the legal system in Corinth was not used so much to seek justice as it was to establish one's status, someone's honor, and position in society. Uh, the courts were often used by the fortunate to basically stomp out the less fortunate. The court was a quick way to move up the ranks and to establish one's kind of superiority over another. So more so, in, in, and more specifically in ancient Rome, uh, taking someone to court was seen as, again, a status symbol for the wealthy and for the powerful. However, those of lower social standing were not allowed to sue their superiors. So you would never have a slave or a servant suing 
their master. It just wasn't going to happen. It wouldn't happen. It wasn't allowed. There was no blind justice as it, as it related to the, from the, the lowest to the highest as far as the social standing was concerned. And so what we see is that the secular magistrates and jurists who presided over these cases were, were known for their corruption and often accepted bribes, and they, they tended to rule again in favor of their friends and those with higher social status. And sadly, the entire legal system was designed to benefit the elite, giving those with more power, influence, and wealth basically a greater legal privilege and a, and a leg up. So the proceedings were not handled in a kind of calm and respectable way. As you'd see the people's court, right, and Judge Wapner, and maybe if you would go down to the courthouse now, you'd probably see the same thing. Maybe not. Again, it was more like Hollywood movie. It was more like reality TV. It was, again, what we probably may see on, on the TV at any given time. Drama was spared at no expense, and these young lawyers and these young orders were essentially out for blood, is what it amounted to, in the hopes of having the onlookers hang on every word that kind of rolled off their silver tongue, right? These were, these were orders. Again, uh, Kirk talked about philosophy. Obviously, you've got philosophy. The birthplace was in Greece and Greek and in Athens. Again, they loved to hear themselves speak. And they proceeded to con conduct kind of their way of doing things in what amounted to a character assassination for the other person in a way that would prove their point and ultimately win the day. So what is, so as we look at this, this passage here this morning, uh, what is Paul kind of talking about? And what is he not talking about? You know, there, there are two kind of, as we understand it, there's a, a court system, there's a civil and a criminal court system. So in these verses, we, we look to kind of conclude in what Paul is talking about here. And one thing, is he, one thing he's not talking about is kind of the condemning of the government or propping the government up or these kind of authorities. He's not talking about that here. We see that in Romans. And he's not talking about necessarily secular courts in general. Rather, he deals with the use of secular courts in civil cases, again, between believers, between Christians. Criminal cases in Corinth would have covered crimes such as embezzlement and extortion and forgery and violent crimes and adultery. Uh, but here Paul is also not covering legal cases between believers and non-believers. This is not something he's talking about here this morning. And in fact, he's only really talking about, if you're kind of looking at the passage, he's talking about more so the cases that were specific to financial or, or property. He's not covering every aspect of all legal cases. And so we need to take these things into consideration as we work through the passage here this morning. But ultimately, God's word here and its principles are, are timeless, right? They transcend regardless of our culture or our situation, as they always do. So we come to our first point here this morning. Is public disputes often lack consistency, and this will cover verses 1 through 6, and we'll have four sub-points, so hang with me here this morning. We see here, and going back over into verse 1, he says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so Paul cannot believe that a Christian would have the audacity to take another to court. Secular court, right? He, he can't believe what is going on here, right? We see words as like unjust as it, as it relates to those in the court. He's saying, uh, the unrighteous, the unjust. He's describing these people. He's talking about unbelievers in these courts, these secular courts. And his downright kind of discontent uh, is shown by how uh, really the first verse here is structured in the Greek. You know, 
The CSB, kind of the preferred way to, to see this passage here this morning, uh, actually talks or starts off with the word dare. So dare any one of you. Dare is, is actually again placed here at the beginning of the sentence to echo his position in a rather loud and assertive way. Kind of like, think about it this way, like, how dare you? How dare you? He is speaking directly at the church at Corinth, and he's saying, how dare you do this? And the reason this situation is so shocking, and not simply because it is a legal dispute, it is shocking because one of Christ, one in Christ is seeking to get, again, this proverbial leg up in an unrighteous world, with the unrighteous, with the unjust in the world, by means of trampling upon another in Christ. So what we'll see here is that a brother or sister is willing to wrong and defraud for some gain in the eyes of the world. And that's the backdrop of what we see here. So there's this last, this, the, the, as far as the, the first subpoint is concerned, sorry, there is, there's a sad loss of perspective in this church. We don't know the reason for this argument in the church. One would think it almost certainly involves, again, some aspect of money, uh, some kind of fellow Christian felt another Christian had cheated them in some way. But Paul does not, again, specify clearly in this passage if he has one specific instance in mind or he's got a multiple multitude of cases, as he's referencing here to the church. Paul does use words in this chapter like cheat and do wrong and thieves and greedy and swindlers. So some financial matter, perhaps, is what he is talking about. Someone had kind of borrowed something and they wouldn't pay it back. They purchased a piece of property and wouldn't ultimately pay what they owed. And Paul strongly suggests that it simply isn't worth quarreling about. He describes in verse 2, and what we see here in the Greek, it's literally translated as trivial. He sees this case, the one that he's talking about here, as trivial. It is the very least of things, things that aren't important, things that ultimately don't matter. Paul knows the secular courts in Corinth could not be trusted. They could not be trusted to deliver fair decision. And their use would inevitably lead to a division in the church. And going this route, in most cases, changes the relationship of those, between those people from top to bottom. It does. It's inevitable. And the drive for victory, in this case, replaces any hope of reconciliation. And what we see is the church is supposed to be God's community that conducts its family affairs in ways that are not shaped by the brokenness of the culture in which it exists. Having a proper perspective as God's saints means that we are to display an alternate way of doing life together. God's justice system runs differently than the world's. And the church is the one place where it is supposed to be on display. And in this setting, it's not. And Paul's pretty furious about it. And so we come to our second subpoint here this morning. Denial of their position. And this will cover verses 2 and 3. And Paul's really looking at this whole situation as a disgrace. They'd lost sight of their destiny. They'd lost sight of who and what they are in Christ. He introduces this again in verse 2, which is the first of six rhetorical questions in the chapter. That all begin in the same way. Don't you know? Don't you know, he says, that the saints will judge the world? Now, it's kind of uncertain exactly what Paul is kind of connecting here scripturally, um, but we see in Matthew 19, 28, where Jesus says to his disciples, 
um, that, sorry, uh, his disciples, that the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you have followed, you have followed me, will always sit, will also, excuse me, sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But maybe more so, Paul is influenced here by Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 22. You can turn over there if you want. I'm going to read these real quick here. Verses 22, and then we'll roll over to verses 9 and 10. In verse 22, he says, Until the Ancient of Days came, the judgment was given for the saints, for the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. In verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days looked, took a seat, his clothes were white as snow, and his hair, and the hair, sorry, of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The court was seated and the books were opened. The court was seated, and the books were opened. And who will preside in this court but those who are the saints? Those in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes to these believers, and he says, what an unbelievable, disgraceful situation that you found yourself in. He simply can't imagine why they're doing what they're doing. He said, you should be looking forward to the day when you will judge the world. You should be looking forward to the day when with Christ you shall share in the judgment of the angels. And so he's, he's asking this question to them. So don't you think that you can settle these minor and trivial matters within the context of the church, within your own body? As one commentator noted, Paul's purpose in these verses here in 2 and 3, is not to articulate doctrine about the saints' role in the final judgment of the world and the angels, but to point out a disturbing inconsistency between what they will be doing at the end of this age and what they're doing right now, what they're doing in that present moment, how easy it is for them to lose sight of, what is, of the internal importance that they have, how easy it is for us to lose sight of that same internal importance to get caught up in the trivial things of this world. Again, it's easy to say, but we all do it. To argue instead of praying, to act on what they feel rather than on faith, to follow our own way instead of God's word. How easy it is to lose our guard and our identity and become deceived. God views us one way, but we choose to reshape our own identities around the things that please, comfort, and excite us. Sound familiar? It does for me. But we see that there is this crisis of identity, a case of, as one commentator put it, a gospel amnesia here in the church, which leads us acting more like the world around us than God's community of believers. The apostle is working to return this gaze of the church in Corinth upon the eternal consequences of the future because their minds are consumed only with that present hour. Again, the promise of the future should direct all that we do in the present. 
And I don't want to be too heavy-handed here, like they have the problem and we don't, or you have the problem and I don't. I think we're inclusive in this. I think our gaze shifts far too often, probably more so than we'd care to admit. At least that, more so than I'd care to admit. Our third sub-point here this morning in verse 5 is that there's a neglect of their resources. A neglect of their resources. If there was anything the Corinthians were proud of, it was, again, their wisdom. They were always going on about it morning, noon, and night. They were in love with wisdom. Look at the kind of the stinging sarcasm we have here in verse 5. Again, it says, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? In a society where reputation is highly valued, such a comment would cause significant harm. And Paul doesn't really seem to care. I think we, uh, we know Paul fairly well, and ruffling a few feathers is not really something he's afraid to do. And thanks be to God for that. So despite this, Paul boldly, Paul boldly makes the statement as he is outraged by their tendency to sue each other, to bring each other to court. And Paul reflects here, he says, Is it possible that there is nobody among you, nobody wise enough to judge a dispute among the believers? You're wise people, aren't you? You have such wisdom, such ability, wiser than everybody else, and yet when there's a dispute... Where are you? Apparently there's not one single person in the whole church wiser and wise enough to judge a simple dispute as this. All your pride, all your gifts, all your abilities, all your blessings, but you can't seem to deal with this very simple problem that the church is facing here. Paul says if there are any disputes in the fellowship, why not appoint a respected Christian? One of your own, someone with wisdom and sensitivity and graciousness. Someone who will honor God in taking great care of the situation and humbly listen to everyone that is involved. Who will act fairly and judge fairly. Surely there's someone. Once a year in Corinth, the city appointed an arbiter for the very purpose of hearing private cases. Those making use of this avoided the public embarrassment, expense, and potentially loss of dignity. The church could have made use of such things, or better, what Paul is really kind of guiding and directing the church at Corinth and us here today is that choose one from among you to be a Christian arbiter, a mediator to help resolve these situations. Now, last Sunday, we, we encountered, and the Sunday before, we encountered a community that was unwilling to deal with the internal issues of sin in their midst. They simply just, they weren't willing to talk about it. They weren't willing to deal with what was happening. And they avoided judging a prominent member inside their community, even while judging those outside the community. Ironically, we find here in chapter 6 is the Corinthians begin completely, being completely inconsistent in how they handled their issues. Now they are judging a member inside their community. Rather than handling inside their community, they're turning the case over to those outside, to the unjust, to the unrighteous, to the secular courts. 
Our sixth sub-point here this morning is a damage to their witness. Damage to their witness. Kind of summing up the, the previous points, there was, a, there was a loss of perspective. There was this denial of their position. There was a neglect of their resources. And again, our fourth sub-point here is that there was a damage to their witness. And for Paul here, as we see, that this, that's the most grievous thing that the church is doing. In the closing phrase of, of verse 6, he says, One brother goes to law against another. And this in front of unbelievers. They're distressing their own church before the world. They're potentially kind of creating this, this, this massive kind of divide between, between the gospel and the world. They're bringing dishonor to Christ. Now, God is obviously big enough to work through any and every situation. But the church is not supposed to act like this. It's not supposed to be this. Paul says, what sort of witness is it when the whole church, or, or excuse me, the whole city of Corinth is gossiping and laughing about the Christians who can't seem to get along? Aren't they supposed to be different? What sort of witness is it? What sort of message is it in the town of Smyrna, Tennessee, where the people of Grace Church, when it's known that there's so much infighting, they can't get anything done? It's not about gospel-centric, close-handed issues. It's not even about tertiary, secondary issues. It's about things that really kind of don't really matter in the end. What message can a church really have to the world around it when it looks just like the world around it? Not saying that grace has that problem per se. You know, I'm not pointing at anyone or looking at anyone at all. Um, sorry, Katie, you just happen to be the one in the front row. Um, but it gives us some perspective here, right? See how God is applying this out to us here today. Another situation that came to mind when thinking about this, and I was thinking like, okay, well, I've, I've never been sued by a fellow believer, and I don't know if I really know another believer that sued someone. Um, and I was really trying to think about it, but um, what came to mind was when I was 17, I'd, uh, I'd been a Christian not very, very long, a new believer, baby believer for, at, at best. And uh, I went to a private Christian school, and uh, the, the Christian school was connected to the church. The church, uh, a church that was connected to the school had actually started the school. And the pastor who was there at that church had been there for 30, 40, maybe even 50 years by the time I came along. I was, I'm not really sure. But um, at any rate, he was getting to the twilight of his years, and he was looking to retire from his work as pastor, his vocation as pastor of the church. And lo and behold, and he seemed to have forgotten this, but at some point in the past, he and his leaders had actually put in the constitution and bylaws of the church that whoever was pastor of the church was also going to be president of the school. Now, he wanted to continue being president of the school, and no one necessarily brought this up to him because he was kind of a controversial figure, and I think those who really wanted to get rid of him kind of saw their inroad to do that. And so as things, as things started to kind of progress, and uh, you know, so, uh, the Lord had brought someone to replace the pastor, and if you want to say he was handpicked um, by the other pastor, you could say that. Um, but lo and behold, this, this pastor um, was kind of, it was brought up to him, hey, look, Look what's in the Constitution and bylaws. Don't you know that you have the right now to be president of the school? And thus, obviously, 
those who are trying to get rid of this, this form of pastor altogether, completely. So what ensued was they, in fact, got rid of the, the older pastor um, of the church, and a really a huge, big kind of war, if you want to call it that, happened within this church and the school. A lot of the teachers, a lot of the parents and families and kids went to this church, and so there was a huge divide within the church. Um, if you want to call it a schism, there was definitely a split, to say it lightly. Um, and uh, really what ended up happening was that the, the former pastor brought this case to the courts. And the courts basically said, your constitution and bylaws are pretty, are pretty ironclad here. You know, you're kind of like, a, I would think that it was basically a way for him to regain or to control power within the school and the church. And he kind of forgot about it. And he just kind of thought it would always remain that way. And they basically, those on the other side, used that uh, to essentially take him down. And so the courts wouldn't really touch it. It became local news uh, in the papers and TV. News stations came to our school. It was, it was quite dramatic. And I remember, I remember just, again, I'm a few months into my walk with Christ at that point as far as you want to talk about a day to another day. I just remember referencing or talking to a friend about everything that is going on, um, and it was, it, was, it was terrible. They treated each other horribly. Like the things that were oozing out of their mouths about each other, these are Christians. These are brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are all grasping at this little kingdom that they've created. It was terrible. And I remember talking to my friend, I said, if this is what Christians are like, I don't want to, I don't want to be one. I don't want to be one. Now, in God's divine providence, you know, our faith is not dependent on that circumstance, a circumstance like that, or those human beings, or those people there, but in the God-man Christ, and I'm thankful uh, for that. Again, reflecting on that, and reflecting on the church at Corinth, you know, these are people that, they're, they're supposed to talk about the peace of God, but they can't even have peace amongst themselves. They talk about Loving your enemy. They can't even love their friends. And people say they're closest to. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is the, how the world is supposed to see Christ in us, by our love for each other. And there was no love lost there, I can tell you that. So this public quarreling is totally inconsistent here in Corinth with their Christian position and their Christian profession. Ultimately, the Corinthians are conducting themselves as though their God-given identity is of no importance. They really don't care. They want to get theirs. They're forgetting the gospel. They're failing to be what they are. They are righteous, but they are living as though they were unrighteous. They are saints, but they're acting just like the world around them. The result is that their community, which is to be a present glimpse of the future community that God intends for the world, simply has nothing to offer. They have no means of displaying the way the gospel shapes a community, and that's sad. That is immensely sad. And again, this is just one person's perspective on what I lived through, but that's a very similar way that I saw it. This is not a community that I want to be a part of. I'm reflecting back on my, my time at school and at that church. I don't even want to be around these people. They're so mean. 
They don't love each other. They don't care for each other. They're not brothers and sisters. They're enemies. But Paul is a true pastor. And he doesn't stop with rebuking their inconsistencies, so he, he moves on to some more practical teaching. So whatever they wrote, he kind of reflects on whatever they wrote kind of in the public square, whatever they wrote on the tablet uh, concerning this apparent victory that this person had over the other, I want you to know that the very fact that you had a lawsuit at all means that you are totally defeated. Totally defeated. He essentially is calling them a loser. I'm not calling them, it's Paul. You may have won something for now, but you have lost something for then. You may have secured a victory before the world, but before the bar of God's judgment, it's registered as defeat. It's counted as defeat. You may get a few dollars. You may have gained a few dollars in the end. You may have got a piece of property you wanted. You may have safeguarded your pride in the end, but you have shown yourself to be an unforgiving, ungracious, revengeful, selfish person. Is that too harsh? A little too on the nose? Maybe. Maybe not. How many times has it been true of all of us? We have won an argument, right? We seized the day. We won the argument. We walked away quite pleased that we had won. And about five minutes later, later we have shame, right, about what we did, what we said, how petty the whole conversation was or argument was in and of itself, how touchy we were, how selfish we were. These things apply out. And we do these things. I do these things. Something is wrong when the people of God will not sort out minor matters among themselves. It's simply unwilling to do. Leon Morris says, To go to law with a brother is already to incur defeat, whatever the result of the legal process is, whatever it is. Whenever you or I engage in lawsuits against one another who are in the body of Christ together, we engage ourselves in defeat. Former Supreme Court Justice Scalia, in reflecting on 1 Corinthians 6, I think it's interesting to get a Supreme Court Justice's, justice's uh, opinion or thought on 1 Corinthians 6, says, I think we are too ready today to see vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, should be slow to sue. And so what does Paul say here? How does he continue on here in, in verse 7? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not just let it go? Why not forget about it? That's pretty easy to say. I think our pride wells up so much that we just won't let go. Even in our conversations, even when we have these arguments, our pride is just steaming us forward to win the day, to seize the moment. Somebody did you wrong. Okay, somebody in the church did you wrong. We all agree to that. We know that something bad or wrong has happened. That you were right and they were wrong. They shouldn't have done it. But how often have you wronged God? How, how often have I wronged God? How often have you sinned against him? What does God do? Does he take you to court? Suffering wrong and being defrauded are not ultimate grievances because Christ bore the ultimate grievance in our place. He endured the wrong that we ought to have endured. He was defrauded 
of what was rightfully his in order to give us what we never deserved. Talking about our sins, what, what we deserve in our sins was damnation. R.C. Sproul, kind of reflecting on our sins, he says, our sins are always serious instances of cosmic treason. Cosmic treason. Yet the Lord shows us grace, having chosen to bear that sin in Christ. And if Christ absorbed all of our wrongs, if he absorbed all of our attacks, if he absorbed all of our rejection, then when others do the same to us, we can practice gospel memory in place of, what, gospel amnesia, which will give us the resources to absorb the blows from others, absorb the blows of this world. And that's what forgiveness is all about. That is what the Christian pursuit of reconciliation is all about. So as we start to wrap up here this morning, a few questions for us all to consider. As we think about this passage, as maybe at some point we are faced with litigation ourselves, Maybe it's ourselves, maybe it's a friend or family member. A couple questions to consider here. First question, is there any way the matter can be mediated outside the court system? Any way that situation that you find yourself in can be mediated outside of the court system? Again, Tom had talked about uh, last few weeks about Matthew 18 and the way that we are supposed to approach these kind of things within the church. You know, we have a grievance, we have an issue. If there is sin, go brother to brother, sister to sister. And if we have it, we don't get anywhere, we go, we get some more people and we continue to kind of stay, kind of go up and stagger up from there. We're supposed to deal with these things humbly and gracefully and openly. Our second question here Will a given litigation be harmful to your Christian, Christian testimony? What is the cost? Not just financially, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. I think at, at minimum we should seek wise counsel. We're so, we're so quick to judge and we're so quick to get whatever it is that we think we are owed. I think a slow process in anything like that is always the better route. Our third question, is the aim to be personally vindicated here in the litigation? or to settle a matter in order to create peace and unity? What's your objective? How are you approaching the situation? So as we look at the kind of practical implications or applications here, they're, they're fairly straightforward here this morning. It presents a chance for the church to stand out amidst difficult times, stand boldly in difficult times. This involves both you and I living for Jesus. And living for Jesus is not an effortless or an isolated experience. We live and we function in this world. We are going to come against troubles and difficulties. Things are going to happen in our lives. And what are we going to stand on? What did the church in Corinth stand on? The Christian community needs to take sin seriously. We need to take it seriously. But handle it graciously and patiently. We should not overlook when wrong is done because we are called to be a community that reflects God's divine justice, his grace, 
his peace, his glory in this world. We reflect him. This means that we never pass over wrongdoings in our midst, but we also do not crush people for the wrong that they have done. The church is a court like no other. Justice is served when grace is extended. Repentant sinners are forgiven. Radically broken individuals are restored. That is the church. That is what we're supposed to look like. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. In most cases, they're long roads, and they're difficult and arduous ones. But that's what we are called to be, and that's what we are called to do. So as we prepare our hearts this morning for the Lord's table, is there anybody with whom you have a grievance, you have a dispute, anyone you have an issue or problem with? Are there certain people you just don't want to forgive? Our desire, no matter how difficult, should be to want to forgive. Because if there are to be living implications of the gospel working in our lives, if the default position is forgiveness rather than rejection, we need to be reminded, we need to remember, friends, that the gospel is what changes us and what Jesus has done for us and how it moves us and shapes us in every situation. Not just in litigation or court proceedings, but our conversations, our thoughts, everything that we do. We are ambassadors of Christ. And it doesn't start when we come in the door and it doesn't end when we go out the door. It's not being a plumber, nine to five, or whatever. It is who we are, and it affects everything that we do. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word here this morning. We thank you for its humble call on our lives in taking difficult situations and pointing us back to the cross pointing us to the gospel. And I pray, Lord, if there is anyone who is dealing with such a situation as we see here in your word, Lord, I pray that their ears were attentive. They heard what you had revealed through Paul, your servant, thousands of years ago that perfectly applied to them today. In all things, let us be patient and kind and loving because that's what Jesus is with us. That is what you are with us. You created a way at your expense for our good and your glory. Let us be changed by your word today. We thank you and love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.